All right, so what, we're, what we basically did last week is that we saw that the, uh, yeah, my writing is off, the Noahic covenant, okay, it's the first covenant in the Bible. Other people, you know, many other writers um, will say that there are covenants before the Noahic covenant. The problem with doing that is that when you ask them where it is and where's the oath, they can't tell you. Or what they identify as being an earlier covenant, somebody else will contradict with their earlier covenant. So, for example, there's a covenant of works and there's a covenant of grace and there's a creation covenant and there's an Adamic covenant and there's an Edenic covenant and all of them contradict each other. And you know what? they're all as wafer thin when it comes to clear representation in the scriptures. And and as we saw last week, unless you can identify the oath within a covenant, you can't identify what's being covenanted. So even if there is a covenant before the Noahic covenant, you don't know what it was about. So you might as well just move on and go to the Noahic Covenant because that is definitely a covenant. Um, again, remember I said when we did the Sons of God that liberal scholars uh, will often say it's talking about angels. Or when I said that, uh, you know, the first chapter of Genesis, they will say the Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. Why do they do that? They do that because they're not threatened by its teaching because they don't believe it. You see? They're just saying that's what this says. And they're right, by the way. It is what it says. It's only the uh, certain evangelicals that seem embarrassed by that that try and read into it and say, well, it's the genre and, you know, there's an an analogy here or there's a framework here and you've got to look at the motif that's being set up. And they get all, um, you know, technical about it. And they come out really with a handful of stuff that looks impressive but... Just, it's like a handful of dandelions, you know. It just doesn't do anything, doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't seem to fit in with what the Bible is actually saying. Um, and it's the same thing in uh, this idea of, of covenants as well. Many of these guys will say, yeah, there are covenants beforehand, but then when they go into look at the motif here and look at this and this and this and they may even go over to ancient Near Eastern uh, Hittite vassal treaties and so on to get a comparison and uh, when it all, all boils down to locating exactly what the covenant is about lo and behold they cannot locate it in the Bible. And so they're scrambling around trying to find these other covenants which are usually, well they're always, deduced uh, from sparse biblical materials and then given a huge amount 
of authority over the rest of the Bible. Remember I've said that, that's what C4 and C5s do. Um, and all the time the liberal scholars are saying, first covenant in the Bible, Noahic. They just say it. There it is. Why? Because they're not looking, you see, for all of this other stuff that uh, the other people are looking for. And remember who the, who the Bible's written for. Is it written for the scholar? Is it written for the person that, who is an expert in Hebrew and Akkadian and um, who knows all about the archaeology and knows about the literary genre of these things? Is, is that what, who it's written for? Of course it isn't. It's written for the common man. That really is a very, very important thing to keep um, next to your heart. That God is not interested in satisfying the intellectual curiosity of the scholar and how he wishes to be communicated with. He's concerned about communicating a clear word to us. And it's up to us to discern that word. And often the discerning of the word is actually just to take it on at face value, irrespective of what society might say about that. Okay? After all, is there anybody that... that um, is a true Christian that doesn't believe in the Trinity. Well, the world thinks that's dumb. Is there anybody who is a true Christian that doesn't believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world? The world thinks that's dumb. What about the resurrection? They think that's dumb. What about hell? They think that's dumb. It's a medieval throwback don't they? Dante's Inferno and so on. There's all kinds of stuff the world's going to mock and laugh at us about, so why don't we, we just add to it and just be satisfied in saying, well, the Bible also says this stuff, so if you weren't going to laugh about the resurrection, you might as well laugh about this, because I believe that too. I think, you know, you've got to be all in. Anyway, uh, the Noahic Covenant is the first covenant, and it's really important because it creates a kind of a, what should we call it, a stage, I think I used the word, a stage upon which the rest of history is going to be played out. So, this, you think about this as the Noahic Covenant, which uh, gives us a uniformity, not uniformitarianism, uniformity, that God's upholding the world in this uniform way. And this stage, therefore, is going to be uh, the place where the different covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, S, come on Paul, covenant never started with an S. Um, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, uh, they're all played out, do you see, upon this stage. Also, because covenants mean what they say, because nobody, nobody believes that 
there will be another worldwide flood. I hope you can see that the Noahic covenant also reinforces a form of interpretation of the Bible. Covenants are hermeneutical things. They are interpretative things. Do you understand why that is? don't think you were here last week, were you? Okay. Then let me uh, just recap uh, quickly for you here. Let's see if I can also stop this from collapsing on me. <clears throat> so do you get this, the stage of, for history? All right. And if you want to know the, the text for that, it's uh, Genesis 8.22. All right, so, um, what do I mean by the Noahic covenant being a uh, an established foundation for? interpretation of the Bible, interpretation of, of God and his purposes. Uh, remember this phrase that I used, which will come up again. Okay, there's a creation project. Okay, that project is, has not changed. The project doesn't change because uh, man messes up and God says, right, I've had enough, I'm going to kill a lot of you. And we're going to start again and, oh, well, that means I've got to switch to plan B. No. There's no plan B with God. God always works on plan A. Do you understand? Why is that important? Why would you switch to plan B? Because of error or fault. Yeah, of course. Or ignorance or whatever, yes? But you can't predicate those things of God... God knows the end from the beginning. Jesus is the Lamb of God that is sacrificed before the foundation of the world, you know, in God's eyes. So he knew that this was coming to pass. So that's no good. We cannot, we cannot believe that the creation project uh, had to kind of die a death of a thousand sins and then get you know, repristinated and so on and changed after the flood. It didn't. So this creation project, okay, is static. It's plan A. So the, crea- the covenants then, the covenants are made to establish an agreement or an understanding around the terms of the oath. Okay? Make a covenant with... Um, you guys, to do something or other, whatever it might be, um, you know, when I die, you can have my Honda Civic out there, for example, and we make a covenant about that, then you can't collect um, my house, or you can't collect anything. like You can collect the car that we covenanted after, you see? Covenants mean what they say. You, in, you understand... What car I'm talking about, I understand what car we're talking about, and you understand when it passes from me to you. And that's what covenants do. They're interpretative. So, 
the Noahic Covenant, does anybody believe that there will be another worldwide flood on the earth? No. Why? Because of the Noahic Covenant. That's the first covenant. All right, here's another covenant for you. Uh, When you trust in Jesus Christ as your saviour, God justifies you. Okay? On the basis of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf, you are justified by God. That's a legal transaction, a once-for-all transaction that God makes. Okay? You celebrate it at the Lord's Supper, which is called the blood of the what? No, no, come on. New covenant, new covenant. Um, so it is a, you may not have realized it, but you entered into a covenant when you trusted Jesus. The terms of the covenant were, if you believe on Jesus, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, you have everlasting life. You see? So, do you take that literally? Does anybody not believe the terms of that covenant that has trusted in Jesus? Do do any of you think that's typological? It doesn't mean what it says. Why not? Because covenants are hermeneutical. All right. Now, um, this is a big thing. Let's let's look at the different covenants quickly, okay? So, the Noahic covenant's about a flood. Not just any old flood, a global flood. That's very big. There's not going to be another one. That's a really big thing. Okay, the Abrahamic covenant has got to do with um, descendants. We'll have a look at this. And land. And it's got to do with the nations of the world and blessing for them. Is that big? Really, really big. Okay, the priestly covenant, even though some of you may not know what that is, that's got to do with uh, Phineas's um, descendants and the priesthood. That's a big deal. Okay, the uh, Davidic covenant has got to do with the reign or the throne and the lineage of David. Big stuff. The Mosaic Covenant, which is, as we will see, it's a temporary covenant, um, but it's about approach to God by law in terms of holiness. Okay? Sorry about that writing. This is big stuff, approaching to God is, and staying in fellowship with God. That's big stuff. And then the New Covenant <clears throat> is about uh, salvation in Christ. And that's the biggest stuff of all. Now, folks, you Maybe it would be... Have I spelled that right? I don't know. Descendants? Is there too many E's in there? It's an A, isn't it? I can't tell if you wrote an A or an E. It's 
So if I hadn't said anything, I would have been all right. All right. All right. Yeah, there we go. All right. Priestley's right. What? <laughs> All right. Look, I only asked you about one word. So, look at this. Um, so, flood, big stuff. Uh, descendants, land, land of Canaan, the nations, and blessing coming to the nations. Okay, God enters an oath over these things to do them. Once you've entered an oath. And you've obligated yourself to do it, especially as uh, we'll see with the Abrahamic covenant, it's a self-maledictory oath, which is just a fancy way of saying that if I don't do it, then what's happened to these animals that I've passed through should happen to me. Do you see? It's a way of, of solemnizing the oath. The priesthood, big stuff. The reign, throne of David, very big stuff. Mosaic covenant, which is temporary. That's still big stuff and the salvation is very big stuff. So, what I'm, what I'm saying here is you cannot, therefore, have any teaching coming in. Uh, we'll represent it. My arrows coming in, Okay. You can't have any teaching that, co- that comes in from the outside from really your interpretation of the New Testament. That's what it is, your interpretation. It's not the New Testament, it's your interpretation of the New Testament. And you're bringing them in to overthrow this stuff or change it or um, mutate it in any way, transform it. That makes a lot of people, a lot of Christians, very uncomfortable because they want to transform this stuff. They want a local flood because they want to date the earth to billions of years. And if the, if the mud was all churned up and the bottom of the oceans came to the top and all this sort of stuff, all this crazy stuff that happened when the fountains of the deep were um, blown open, then your dating techniques are not going to work because you don't have any, you know, any way of finding what the original content of the, the rock was as far as its uh, decay, you see. That's why when they, when they test fresh lava flows with um, iridium strontium dating or uh, uh, potassium argon or any of these ways of radiometric dating, they're millions of years old, even though they're coming out the side of the volcano. Do you see that? So, uh, they've, they've also had, they've, they've dated, well, no, no, never mind. I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail. So, also, look, land. What land? The land of Canaan. It's very clear, the land of Canaan. Okay? Um, we'll see when we get to the Psalms that the psalmist, 400 years later, knew what land it was. It hadn't changed in interpretation in 400 years. Um, it's the land of Israel. 
given to Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants. Do you see? You can't change that. A lot of people want to because they've got a nice replacement, you know, in their back pocket. It's called the church. They want to switch Israel out and put the church in there. You can't do that. Um, Same with the priesthood. Is there going to be a future temple? A lot of people don't want a future temple because they can't figure out how there can be a future temple. Well, guess what? God's not concerned about whether you can figure it out or not. Is he? He didn't ask you for your views on that. He just made a covenant with Phineas that he would continue his priesthood. Uh, the Davidic throne. The throne's not in heaven. David's throne was never in heaven. It was on earth. It was an earthly throne. Because it was an earthly throne, you can't make it a heavenly throne. Because that would be changing the covenant. Do you see? They'd make it dumb covenant as well, wouldn't it? Of course there's a throne in heaven. So what? Um, salvation in Christ. You don't want to mess around with that one, do you? Vested interest in that one. So, uh, these are, these are interpretative. So what we're going to do is we're going to move on now and we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. What you'll find, I'm sorry we can't, uh, kind of stick around and do the table of nations or any of that in chapters 10 and 11, but what we will do is that we'll see that it's dealing with Noah's posterity going all the way back to, or down to, Abram. Okay, he's a Shemite, and so Noah to Abram. That's what those chapters are doing. They're tying together, if you like, the first part of Genesis with the second part of Genesis. So chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis are tied together with 12 to 50 by chapter 10 and chapter 11, the, the interface between those. Do you see? Now, if you, if you don't believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are literal, then you, what on earth do we do with chapter 12 and chapter 13? Because they're based in, they're, they're rooted in chapters 10 and 11. Now, before we go on to Abraham, I do want to visit the Tower of Babel really quickly because there is something kind of interesting in chapter 11 at the beginning there that we need to understand or we need to see. It is again, uh, it's got to do with interpretation. It's got to do with, do we believe what God says? Does he believe what he says? And uh, we'll see that the answer is yes. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. According to Zephaniah chapter 3, I think verse 9, um, that is how it's going to return. In fact, in my, uh, in my kind of seminary class on biblical theology, I actually start the course with Zephaniah chapter 3. And just put it out there and say, well, okay, 
this is written in the uh, 6th or 7th century BC. There's a lot of stuff that came before it. But what is he saying here? Let's just kind of see what he's saying. Kind of the midway point in the in history here. And let's see what he says. And then, you got that in your head? Right, now we can go back to Genesis. Um, but there was one speech back in chapter 11. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. Where are they going? They're going from the east to the west. That they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Um, have you got, somebody have got another translation of verse 2? Just let me just check there, stop there. Anyone got another translation of verse 2? Okay, that's about the same, not, not a problem. Then they said to one another, uh, there's an interesting stylistic interplay here. They're saying to one another, and you'll find that God's going to be speaking to himself. Okay? So what man is saying, and, and that man is planning, and then God's planning. Man doesn't know what God's planning. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Um, so they made their own materials. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Make a name for ourselves. What that means is that we, we without God and his interference, we are going to kind of celebrate ourselves. And our renown is going to kind of go through history. Why? Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So this was a, um, this was an early attempt at the United Nations. The best chance that the UN ever had was back here. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed the people are one and they all have one language. Now, God wants us, as, in, as a people of God, to be one. But you can have oneness that God doesn't like, and this is one of them. This, you can have a unity that God's not, not really that um, crazy about. This is an example of unity without God. They all have one language, and this is what they begin to do, because they languages that the the bottom of thought. You know, you can't really think without talking to yourself. Do you see? So languages are the very basis of thought. And that's why when when uh, God made man a rational being, he had to give him language. <clears throat> now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Um the evil that could have been brought about by this had to be stopped by God. Do you see that? Um, the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They all have one language. Oh, I've done that one. Come, 
let us go down. He's not talking to Gabriel and Michael and the rest of the bunch. He's talking to himself. Let us go down and confuse or confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. It's very simple for God. It's just a simple thing he has to do, which will stop them. It will thwart them. Uh, So, this is what he's saying to himself. Uh, So, what do you expect he's going to do? So, the Lord scattered them abroad from the face over... uh, from there over the face of all the earth and they cease building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel or Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. That's my point. That's my point. When God speaks to himself and then declares something, there's not a difference between what he says to himself and what he speaks. That's really important because that means that when God promises you something, um, it's, it's not just a, uh, an external promise. It comes from his soul, if you will. Do you see? It comes from him. That's what he's saying to himself. So when he promises you something, when he promises you final peace, when he promises you um, resurrection, when he promises you a home in heaven uh, to be with Christ, which is gain, okay? When he promises you that gain, that's what you're going to get because that's what he's promised. So we had a... Uh, elderly lady um, on Tuesday who, who passed away and I prayed with her an uh, hour or two before she she passed and and what I did is I read to her um, Psalm 23 and John 10 and 1 Corinthians 15 and we spoke about those things about the reality of it and I, I said to her you'll be entering into the reality of these things soon <coughs> And, of course, her family was there. I made sure that they heard that. <laughs> but, you know, um, these things are, are... I can say those things to a dying person because they're true. Do you see? They're true. And uh, when God says he's going to do something, he does it. All right. Then from verse 10 through to... Verse. Let's go to verse 26. It it goes down from the genealogy of Shem. Do you see that? Verse 10. And then you've got all of these names: Afarxad, and Salah, and Eber, and Peleg, and Ru, and Serug, and Nahor, and the rest of them. And then it comes to Terah. <clears throat> and it says in verse 26, Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. That's setting up the uh, protagonists for the next part of the story. Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah 
the daughter of Haran, the father of Melchah, and the father of Iscar. But Sarai, Sarai was what? She had no child, just in case you didn't know what barren meant. Very clear. Do you see? He's setting you up for what's going to happen in the next chapter. This is the same chapter as the Tower of Babel. This is the chapter that links you back to Noah through the genealogy of Shem. You cannot separate, therefore, chapter uh, 11 from chapter 12 and say Genesis 1 to 11 is just myth and chapter 12, that's the real history. You can't do that. So, well, so what? Sarai is barren. This is as far as we've got so far. But clearly, this is not just a little bit of information that is completely irrelevant to what's going to be said in a few minutes. This is something that he wants us to know so we understand what's going to happen next. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and the son of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Terah, as we'll see, that wasn't his calling. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years. Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said to Abram, not to Terah, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. So what did he do? Brought half his family with him. To a land that I will show you. Um, Now today, we can, you know, God can call us and say, you know, go to a you know, Europe or go to Asia and we go drive down to San Francisco airport, get on a plane and in several hours we're there. And because we've seen pictures and we've read books about it and because we're kind of familiar with things, okay, we're not going in blind. And we know we're going to land at another airport which is going to be nicely furnished, you know, unless we're going somewhere in the backwoods of Africa or something like that. And... Uh, it's be fairly safe and we should be alright. God's called us there. Abraham, he's in kind of south uh, part of Iraq, modern day Iraq, and he's been told to leave his community. The community is all he knows and they worship the local deities of that community in Ur of the Chaldees. That place has been found, by the way. They, they've located Ur of the Chaldees. And um, God, this other God, it's not the moon God, it's not the sun God, it's, some, it's the real God, has called him and said, okay, get away from all this. Everything you know, the people you love, and you've got to go to a land that I'm going to show you. Well, you know, if... If it was me, I would kind of want to know, well, yeah, but what land? Not, not the land just over there, because they're not very nice people. And they hate us. Or they worship false gods, or what, you know. They're warlike. 
God didn't answer that question. God just said, get up, I'm going to lead you, and when I say stop, you stop. And they had to go up and uh, couldn't go across the desert because, you know, he'd die. They had to go up and up to uh, northern Syria, okay, and Haran is about halfway, then up to uh, where Carchemish used to be, and then down into Canaan through Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, and into modern-day Israel, you see? That's a long way. That's a big trek. He's going to a place, and he doesn't know these, this land, these people. This is completely strange to him. This was a huge thing for him to do. So I can understand why he took his dad. But God didn't just say go. He said, he gave him a word of promise. I will make you a great nation. Okay. So I will make you a great nation. What does that mean? That means that from Abraham will come a new nation, a new group of people that will be coalesced into a a brand new nation. So he will be the founder of a nation. I mean, that is a big deal, especially back in the ancient world. I will bless you and make your name great, and you've certainly done that, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Now, the you here is not just Abraham, but it will also, and he would understand this, it will also include those that come from him, do you see? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the families or, you know, the other nations of the world, they're separate to this nation. I hope you can see that, even behind the pillar. That you have families of the earth that are going to be blessed through Abraham and the idea is going to be really not just through him personally but through this nation. Um, If I can just skip to Exodus 19 real quick just to put this bug in your ear. Look what God says to Israel before the mount. Verse 5, chapter 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Well, if he's going to be a... Sorry, Israel are going to be a special treasure to God above um, 
all the other peoples, that means they're going to be differentiated from all the other peoples. Do you see that? Not mixed. Yes? For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what's their job going to be? Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you see that? Now, Israel, of course, botched the job. As a nation, they botched the job, but still, through uh, Christ, all the families of the earth have been blessed. But don't think that God has, has just rejected this plan either. He intends to make Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Because it's still on plan A. Human sin does not um, destroy the plans of God. It might detain it. It might hold it up for a while. A few thousand years. But it doesn't stop it. <clears throat> so, back to Genesis 12. So looking here at uh, verses 1 through 3, notice here that he's, in verse 1, taken to a land, a specific land. Okay, this land is mentioned again in verse 7. In verse 7, God says here, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Which land is that? Canaan. So now, uh, there's a promise that the land is going to be given to the nation, the descendants. Do you see? Are we all right with this? All right. Okay. There's no covenant actually made here. Notice. These are just promises. There's no covenant made with them. I know many people that go to the Abrahamic covenant, they go to Genesis 12, but there isn't a covenant here. There are promises. You don't see the covenant in show up until chapter 15 which we'll get to soon but we have here ingredients then we have the ingredients of a particular nation that will bless other nations a specific land and a blessing upon those that bless this nation and a cursing upon those that curse it those are the main ingredients. And Abraham will be great. I have a great name. Alright. So chapter 13. Abraham goes down into Egypt. Okay. At the end of chapter 12. And lies. Chapter 13. He went, comes up out of Egypt. A little bit chastened. And with his wife. And who else is with him? Lot. To the south. Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there at first, the one we just read about. 
And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord, the one who had promised him the land. Lot also, who went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents. And of course, there was strife among them. And Abraham, being humble, said, well, let's separate and you choose first. Well, that was kind of a risky thing. But Lot, being Lot, chose Sodom. By the way, he's called a just man in the book of James, which is hard to understand unless you, you understand that, that uh, um, Lot was a man of faith. Hard to believe. But Lot was a man of faith as well as a man of the world, <laughs> somewhat. And even his um, worldliness, God rubs out after in his memory of him. Do you see that? God, in a sense, accounted him righteous. Do you see that? That's really encouraging for us who are constantly messing up and wondering what God thinks of us and we're concerned about our righteousness. Well, your righteousness is secure because it is not yours. (laughs) It's Christ's. It's imputed to you. Okay, so even though you have a really messy life down here and you will, and I will, lose rewards and probably get chastened, uh, you won't go to hell and um, God will look back on you and call you righteous. Just. Kind of amazing that, really. So once Lot has got what he wants, um, look at verse 12. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. And then the men of Sodom were very wicked. Then verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot, who he didn't call, had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Where is he? Canaan. Northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. The descendants, of course, are going to be the nation that comes from it. And I will make your descendants, or your seed, the word is Zerah, seed, as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. P.S. Not right now, but walk around in it now, because the you there, and Abraham understands this, it's hard for us to understand it in the West, but Abraham understands this as his descendants. Then you have the uh, war with the five kings in chapter 14 and the meeting of uh, Abram with Melchizedek. Look at verse 17 of chapter 14. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shedeleomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
That's interesting, isn't it? He was the priest of the Most High God, or God Most High, whatever your translation says there. So God has a priest that Abraham doesn't know about, or at least we don't know about until he shows up here in chapter 17. We're not given any information about him at all. He's just pop. He's There he is. He's right there. He's an important guy. He's the priest of God. This is before the Levites. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. So he, he understands that God has called Abram, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him a tithe of all. And uh, that means, as the writer of Hebrews will tell us, that Abraham gave a tithe to the greater person. Now, this man, Melchizedek, is Malki, that's the Hebrew term king or ruler, Sedek, uh, righteous, okay? And he's the priest of the, of the high God. He's a king priest. Notice that. He's a king priest. Write it down. Why aren't you writing it down? Because I'm processing Okay. Because later on, when we get to Zechariah, you're going to see a king priest. And then when we get to Hebrews, you're going to see a king priest, Jesus. Who is king after the order, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was also a king. Right, chapter 15. So we haven't, well we've, uh, sorry, say that again. We haven't seen a covenant yet made by God with Abram. But we have seen promises. Now when God promises something, that's, that's as good as anything. I mean, this is the God that says, let your yes be yes and you'll know no. Um, now in chapter 15, he's going to make a covenant. So let me ask you a question, which I'm not going to answer, but maybe you can, um, at the end of the class, you can give me an answer. Why does a God who cannot lie, who, can, who will always tell the truth, whose yes is yes and no is no, why does he need to make a covenant? Why does God need to make covenants? You know what? That is a really profound question. And it's one that I've never seen a scholar ask. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm anything for asking it. Maybe I'm too stupid to um, not to ask it, do you see? But, I asked it, and it's a really interesting question. Then I went and read as many scholars as I could, and none of them asked that question. That's a pretty interesting question. Why on earth would God even bother to make a covenant? The answer is actually what we saw last week in chapter 6 of Hebrews. (laughs) Um, But think about it, and then see what you can come up with at the end of the 
class. In the meantime, chapter 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. There's a reason why Abram might be afraid. He's just been to war with five nations that have come and raided him. He's a a stranger and a sojourner in this land. He doesn't own any of this land. He's just got a tent. That's probably a pretty nice tent and a bunch of camels and all this. He's He's a rich guy, but he doesn't own anything. He's vulnerable. At least he's vulnerable from a human standpoint. So God assures him, you don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to protect you. But Abraham's got something else on his mind. Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Well, that's a very good question, particularly for somebody who's been promised that from him is going to become a nation. And it's like, hold on a minute, God. You know, that's a nice promise and everything, but... Don't you remember chapter 11? Chapter 11 says, Sarai was barren. This is not a good thing if you're going to start a nation through Abraham and Sarai. So, God got it wrong? Has God um, not figured this one out? I mean, from from all of the uh, outward appearances, this seems to be the wrong choice for God. Sometimes God confronts us with things that don't make sense to us. How on earth am I going to do that? How on earth do you expect me to do this? Or how, how on earth is this going to come about? How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to m- go on after this and so on? Do you see? How do you expect me to do that? And, well, you do it in faith. Because God is the one who, whose problem it is when you trust him. When you trust him, it's God's problem. You don't want to make it your problem, you want to make it his problem. So put it back on him and then leave it with him saying, God, look, I don't know what you're going to do about this, but you're going to have to do something. And if you don't do something, well, I guess then I'm down the tubes. But I trust that you will, because you said you will. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Um, it's, it's, it's not too much of a push to say that there was maybe a little bit of angst in what he was saying here. After all, God had said, I'm your shield, don't worry, I'm fine, I'm, you know, you're fine, I'm your shield. Abraham changes the subject. He says, well, great, but... What about the, uh, the seed thing? How's that? Because that's what I'm more concerned about. 
you know, people, they, prayer is, is like that, or it should be like that. Conversation with God should be like that. He knows what you're thinking anyway. So, you know, just be straight with him. And Abraham is straight with him. What about this problem? I don't have any offspring. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir. Abraham, you see, at the moment, he's probably thinking, well, the only way this is going to come about is that my heir is not really my son, so that these are not really my descendants, so that I'm not really the progenitor of the nation. It's, it's going to be this guy, Eliezer. And I'm just kind of, because he's my servant, I suppose I, you know, I get some headlines somewhere in history. Because he's thinking that this is, this looks to be the way that God's going to do it. God must mean it spiritually. Is really what he's saying, do you see? So what does God say? God say, this one, the one who would be the spiritual interpretation, not him. Okay, so forget the spiritual interpretation. Okay, let's go for the literal translation here. The literal translation is that it's not going to be this guy, and he says, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. That's what Abraham thought at the beginning. And now he's become a bit disillusioned with that because it doesn't look as though that's the way it's going to play out. You ever felt like that? You thought God meant this and then you get disillusioned with God and then you try and think, okay, well, maybe it can be another, maybe it can be a less fantastic interpretation, rather boring one, rather mundane one. Okay, and maybe we'll, you know, I'll praise God for that. Am I talking your language? So, uh, then God comes back and says, no, you were right the first time. I meant it the first time, what I said. See, I said last week, one of the words you should have written down was this word here. Expectation. If I promise you something, I raise an expectation in you for that thing, do you see? My language, the words that I pick, communicate a certain thing. And if I don't mean what I say, or if I'm using ambiguous words, and you take a wrong interpretation, and that's not your fault, that's my fault for being a rotten, uh, rotten communicator. Isn't it? I need to say what I mean. They used to be taught, you know, in uh, English class, speak plain English, say what you mean. So choose your words correctly. Well, if anybody can choose their words correctly, it's going to be God. He created language after all. So, um, this is what happens next. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. 
And then he said to him, so shall your descendants, the ones that I talked about in chapter 12, be. Now, Abraham has just been reasoning that God didn't really mean what he said. And God said, I do mean what I say. And so, now come outside, look at those stars, and I mean this one too. Your offspring will be like the stars of heaven. And Abraham believed God literally. And that makes him the paragon of faith used by Paul in the New Testament. Because he believed God literally. Not that he believed God spiritually. By the way, is God using a metaphor? Well, it's a simile, actually. Is he using a simile, a figure of speech? Yes. But a figure, a figure of speech is to be believed literally. It has a literal referent. Do you see that? <clears throat> so, verse 6, He believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. He didn't believe that Jesus was going to die on the cross. He'd never heard of the cross. It wasn't invented yet. Uh, he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know what uh, Bethlehem was. Um, he didn't know who the Romans were or the Pharisees or any of that stuff. But he didn't have to because that wasn't the content of uh of uh, the promise that God had made him. God counted it righteousness because Abram believed him. Now, he hasn't said that to us, so if we go believing that God, you know, our descendants are going to be as the stars of heaven, we'll end up in hell, as well as very disappointed. But he did say it to Abram. And that was what justified him. That's made a lot of in the New Testament. Then he said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Just in case you thought you ended up in the wrong place. This land. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Good question. I want a little bit of security here. I want a little bit of, you know, rootedness. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Why did he do that? Well, because he knew that something, some important covenant was going to be enacted and he didn't want the vultures coming and picking the animals apart. That's why. Then when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram 
And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. It was kind of a, a dread came upon him in his dream. Then he said to Abram, this is God, No, what's that next word? Certainly. Certainly. That your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Well, we know the next book. So, what's that a reference to? Israel and Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. What's that a reference to? The Exodus. Okay? All right. Now, Abraham didn't know that. But there's enough detail here for him to know that at least they would go down into another country, they would serve them for 400 years and be ill-treated, and God would bring them back again. Didn't have that entire story, but had that much. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. This means Abraham was not expecting to inherit the land. Which means when Hebrews chapter 11 says that he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God, that's because he knew he wasn't going to inherit the land and so his expectation was heaven. Do you see? Why is that important? Because people use that verse to teach that Abraham wasn't expecting to inherit the land and therefore the land promise was typological. And they spiritualize it and give it to the church. But Abraham knew he wouldn't. Do you see? But he also knew his descendants would. So he was looking for a heavenly city. But he knew his descendants at some time would have that land. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Now, we're not told that that was God, but that was God. It wasn't just a uh, a torch and an oven hovering, you know, several feet above the air going through these, these things. Obviously, that was God. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. This is what this is. This is a covenant saying, look at this. Look at the, the uh, oath that's being made. To your descendants, I have given this land... And then he describes it from the river of Egypt. That's probably uh, uh, Wadi Al-Arish. It's probably not the, uh, the Nile. To the great river, the river Euphrates. That's a lot of territory, by the way. That's more than Israel's ever had. It's about 300,000 square miles, if you want to know how much it is. That's, uh, one scholar has figured that out. Uh, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and Jebusites. That's the, um, he would know where they dwelt. 
So all of where you can locate these different peoples, that would be the boundaries. You'll have all of that territory. That's certainly not this a tiny little land of Israel right now. You see? That's a lot of people. A lot of, a lot of area. So what we have here uh, in the covenant is we have mention of descendants and land. Okay? Descendants and land. That is the major part, that is the oath part of the covenant. So when, you, when we come to the prophets in our next uh, course, you're going to see that the prophets link Amos and Ezekiel, um, many others, but they do it a lot. They link Israel with the land. Because that's Israel's land. So they're almost synonymous. Psalm uh, 105, I believe. Psalm 105, verse 7. In fact, no, we'll go to uh, verse 5. 105, verse 5. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, just remember that, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. That's a lot of generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his, what's that next word? Sworn promise, the actual word is oath to Isaac. Confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying, just in case you don't know what what the covenant's about, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. And it moves on. It goes through uh, some of the history of Israel there. So this is many, many years after this, centuries, well, many centuries after this, probably a thousand years or more after this event, but the, the promise of the land and the descendants is understood to be the same. It hasn't transformed or been spiritualized over a thousand years. It means the same thing to the writer of Psalm 105 as it did when it was spoken to Abraham. Because covenants must mean what they say. They are static things. Again, remember the the two passages in Galatians chapter 3 and uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Galatians chapter uh, 3, I think verse 5, says that even though it's a man's covenant, yet no one disannuls it. No one changes it. You can't change it. God 
uh, in uh, Hebrews 6, I can't remember the, the uh, verse, but uh, it says that, that because he wanted people to believe him, he swore an oath by himself. Which brings us to this question. Why does God make covenants? Why didn't God just stick with the promise? I mean, his word's good, isn't it? Why did he make a covenant? So we can clear expectations. That's extremely good. I'm going to give you two points for that. Oh, is it? That's fine. It shows me that you're paying attention. Um, she, she said, so that they would have clear expectations. But they could have had clear expectations without the covenant. So again, it doesn't completely answer the question, but it's very good. Sorry? That's exactly right. He gets five points. Mike says, because people doubt what he says. We have a tendency to doubt him. He does go to Les's church, so Les gets, yes, Les gets some kind of, I don't know, a half a point or something just transferred to him by osmosis. Um, we tend to doubt God. God knows that. Look at the chapter. <coughs> Abraham wants clarification. He wants, so that what's the best clarification you can get? How about a, a sworn oath from God? That one will do. Take that one to the bank. That's what Abraham has got. That's what Noah got. That's what David got. That's what you've got. Now, folks, when God makes these covenants for a land and a specific people, and I did, I did bring in Exodus 19, um, just to show you they're a peculiar people, okay? A special people, and he wants to make them. Above the other nations, I did that so you'd understand. Um, the promise about I'll make you a nation and you'll be a blessing to the nations. Okay? There's a, a separation there that must be observed always. That the promise of the land and the nation is forever. It's everlasting. Psalm 105 tells you that. It's forever. You say, well, I don't like Israel. It doesn't matter. Because God hasn't said that you can make that decision. Guess what? You're just as bad. I'm just as bad as Israel. Anyone, you read the book of Numbers recently? It makes, you, it makes you sick. It's like, you guys, you know, can you not trust God just for five minutes? Of course, it was more than five minutes, but can you not trust him for one chapter in this book? And they can't. And guess what? Neither could I. I'm not any better than they are. 
So unless God is faithful, unless God is merciful, then not only would Israel have had it, I'd have had it too, and so would you. So it all depends on God and his word. And when he makes a covenant, then that word is the, is the most sure word that can ever be made. So in the midst of the struggles and the trials and everything in life, God, in order to be something that we, someone that we can firmly hold to, knowing his uh, the steadfastness of his promises and character and showing also that our sinfulness is uh, in contrast to him and you know with his covenant when we break our side of it that there's there's consequences for that but God's holiness is always shown to be right and therefore gives us that contrast and that ability to hold on that's a very long question but yes (laughs) Um, but apart from one thing that you said which was our side of it we don't have a side of it. Um, now, hold on a minute. You don't have a side of the covenant oath. The covenant oath is if you believe, well, that's your bit of it, if you want, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your saviour, God is obligated to um, forgive you and redeem you. Now, because God has done that, and if he's giving you his Holy Spirit, there are, uh, there's a work of sanctification that has to be done. But that's not, you, you, there's no covenant oath that binds you to that. It is your love and your relationship inside of that covenant that binds you to sanctification. You know, and as, as we don't do particularly well on that side of stuff, do we? I mean, um, you know, I give myself maybe two out of ten for how I'm doing on that. I was just thinking further back, it might, might be misunderstanding, uh, where, he, where it said that if you will keep my statutes and if you will obey my commands, that... Where does it say that? Um, it was further back in the reading. Okay. Oh, okay. So you're referring to, to that side of things. That wasn't That's not part of the oath, and I'm going to bring that out when we get to chapter 17. Okay. But thank you for that. I just, that was the part that I needed. Um, all of um, the unconditional covenants, so the Noahic covenant, this covenant, the priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, even, no, not so much, they all have conditions appended to them. But those conditions are not conditions of the eventual fulfillment of God's obligations because he obligates himself in the oath. He must come through on it. But what they might do is they might detain the fulfillment. So the land has been promised to Israel. But God said, look, if you guys keep me in the time of, of, uh, well, time of Moses and Deuteronomy, but... uh, eventually in the time of Jehoiakim and later um, Zedekiah, he said, look, Babylonians are coming because you've been wicked. I told you I'd 
drive you out of the land. And he did. But because of the Abrahamic covenant, he's going to bring them back again. Uh, chapter 35 of Genesis, what do we find um, Israel doing? Moses is up Mount Sinai. What are, what's Israel doing with Aaron? Making a golden calf and having a good, jolly old time of it. And Moses comes down the mount and God says, stand back, I'm going to, this is it. I'm going to zap them and Moses intercedes and do you know what he intercedes with? The what? Be more specific. I'm saying, I think he had promised the people that he would restore them and take them into the land. Mm, no, I need more than that. It's not bad, but more than that. He uses this. He appeals to the Abrahamic covenant. Do you see? That's that's what stopped God's hand. He says, well, you covenanted. So you can't. Do you see that? Still a promise. All right. A covenant still is a promise, but a promise is not always a covenant. And we'll get to that next week. But that's, that's you're quite right. All right. Any, um, any questions or anything that can you take the Abrahamic covenant back to the modern day Israel? No, oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. They're still they're still holding on to that land that was promised to them. Oh, well, no, you can't do that. Can they say that they can do that? Yes, they can say it. Yeah. But the thing is, Israel is still in unbelief. So you cannot what you can't do is say that Israel, present-day Israel, is in the land because of the Abrahamic covenant. What you can do is you can say Israel exists on the basis, as a, as a nation, on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. We'll see uh, when we get to that. Um, but, and by the providence of God, they are in the land. But what you cannot say is that they're in the land on the basis of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant uh, because it's theirs. And why can't you say that? The reason you can't say that is because they're going to get booted out of it again by the Antichrist, if I read my Bible properly. And then they will come back again. But when they come back, they will come back in belief. Do you see? So God will give them the land, it's theirs, but not to a disobedient, necessarily to a disobedient generation. So I'm a full supporter of Israel in, the la- in their land and the nation of Israel you know, deserves to be there and better not turn against them like most of America's politicians. Um, but you cannot say it's a fulfillment of anything. Because the fulfillment, as we'll see, we're, we're just in Genesis. But as you'll see, um, when we get into the prophets, again, they are very specific about when Israel comes into possession 
of that fulfillment. And the thing they need is salvation. That's what they need, salvation. Okay, anything else? Um, by the way, um, just another thing incidental here. In verse 13 of chapter 15. How was that accomplished? How was it accomplished? That uh, there'd be strangers in a land that is not theirs that serve them and uh, they'd afflict them 400 years. How did they get down there? You know the story. Joseph. How did Joseph get down there? <laughs> Sin. God uses even the, the wicked sins of people to bring his purposes to pass. So don't think that the world is, I mean the world is going to pop. But don't think that God can't turn it around any time he wants to. It's not, he's not going to be thwarted.